Greetings, dear listeners. This is another exciting episode of the Remnant Podcast. Uh, this week's episode is brought to you by two sponsors. Uh, we'll hear more about them in a little bit, but they are Untuck It and Americans for Prosperity. Uh, I have we're I, I told you we wanted to sort of expand the portfolio of this this fully functional podcast, and so we're easing in to uh, having more ideologically diverse guests on the podcast and. You're official. Oh, sorry. And our, our guest today is Charles Lane, my colleague, sometimes from Special Report panel, Washington Post editorial writer. Yes. And former editor of the New Republic. You're also the bureau chief for Newsweek in Berlin. Long ago. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, are you like one of the last like neoliberals? Is that what you are? What are you? <laughs> I know you have to fill the liberal chair on Special Report. Yes. But but you seem to be on a little bit of a journey. I'm, I'm always, uh, f- floundering, fumbling. Uh-huh. I, I describe myself as somebody who's trying to uh, trying to prove that centrism is not boring and that centrism is also um, not content free mm-hmm. or mushy. And uh, that's what I, I have a column in the post once a week, and that's kind of my platform for doing that. Trying to also insist that ideas and policy still matter. Even though all evidence to the contrary, sometimes it doesn't seem that way. Yes, but 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 neoliberal, I'll cop to that. Uh, I used to get called a neocon too. But I, I am really, I I really do take seriously the the idea that in journalism you should be non you should be nonpartisan, which is not the same thing as being non ideological or right. not having views. But I try to be politically independent. And how long have you been at the? So how did you get into all this? You went sure. to Bethesda Chevy Chase, right? I went to Bethesda Chevy Chase High School. I didn't know that was a famous high school, but that's where I went. <laughs> um, our it's famous mo- if you live in Washington. D. Yes, our most yeah. famous alumnus is David Simon, who uh-huh. wrote The Wire and a whole bunch of other things. Taking his nitty gritty urban experience from Bethesda Chevy Chase and putting it on the screen. Correct. <laughs> and um, so, and uh, yes, I went to Harvard. Um, I also went to Yale Law School years later, so I have a, I'm doubly Ivy cursed. Um, but my early um, career was spent mostly interested in foreign policy and reporting from abroad. And so after an internship at the New Republic in the early 80s, I worked as a foreign correspondent for about a half a dozen years for various outlets, including Newsweek, as you said. Then I came back to the New Republic. I spent a lot of the 90s there. I was the editor for a while. And since uh, – it's been 19 years now I've been at The Post and mm-hmm. I've done two main things at The Post. I covered the Supreme Court for a number of years, a great experience, and I've been writing editorials and columns since I guess about 2008. Okay. So I, I, I want to get to the New Republic stuff. For for listeners who don't know, as Jack put it before we started recording, Chuck is the guy who defeated Darth Vader in the movie uh, Shattered Glass. You were the one who – it fell to to unearth the mistakes – the, the mistakes that were made by um, Steve Glass at the New Republic, which they made a movie about. But we'll get to that in a minute. I've always had this theory, and correct me if I'm wrong, that one of the reasons why – and you can take this as a compliment if you like. One of the reasons why the Washington Post's editorials tend to be better written or more engagingly written so that you actually want to read them sometimes is that the, – than the New York Times was. Because the New York Times, they feel like they've been shopped out to a committee. And it kind of always feels like the the post, they pick someone who has a strong position on it and they say, okay, you're going to write basically for the editorial board. Is that how it works? I don't know how it works at the Times. Uh-huh. I won't comment on them. But yes, that's basically how it works at the Post. And the Post editorial board process headed by Fred Hyatt, our editorial page editor, is a pretty – I think a pretty good process. 
that there are ba- basically issue specialists on the board who kind of take the ball and run with it depending on what's in the news and therefore develop a little bit of expertise mm-hmm. in a certain line of, of issues. And I think the good thing about post one of the many good things about post <laughs> but maybe the best thing about them, and I hear this from a lot of readers, so I know it's not just my self-interested view, is that you don't necessarily know what the post is going to say yeah. before you pick up the paper uh, or click on it online. And I think that's a good thing, the unpredictability. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I'm free to talk about the Times. I, I The only times I ever feel required to read a New York Times editorial is for essentially – sociological reasons, you know, <laughs> um, rather than... I'm sure they're happy to have you read it for any reason. For edification. But, yes. but uh, um, and so I've been told by several people, I think we actually have discussed it once, that under the Bezos regime, enlightened, beneficent regime that it is, um, I, I'm not trying to get you to speak ill of anybody, you guys have a giant scoreboard that shows real-time traffic <laughs> uh, I was talking to George Will about this the other day. Is this yeah, right? Well, not not the editorial side. As uh-huh. you understand, we're separate from the news side. But yes, there's this big thing uh-huh. uh, in the in the middle of our newsroom that can show. Uh, you could call it a scoreboard. It's it's showing all our metrics, all our audience engagement metric in real time. In real time, yes. I don't claim to understand them all, uh-huh. but you can tell kind of like what is. What's the word? What's going viral or mm-hmm. whatever on uh, on our news site? Parenthetically, we can track those things on the editorial side and we do. But I also know that – I don't know what the criteria are on the news side. That's a separate operation. But I know on the editorial side, we have – or Fred and um, his deputy Jackson Deal have kind of made a strategic decision that we're going to be aware of all those numbers but we're not going to target those numbers. Mm-hmm. That there's certain things because of the nature of being a leading uh, independent newspapers editorial side that we're going to just say because we think they're intrinsically important mm-hmm. regardless of whether they – I mean that sounds very high-minded and everything. I'm just here to tell you it's true. Well, look, I mean I just think it's an awful idea in principle, right? Um, because uh, you hear these stories about how a certain uh, – we don't have to drag names in it. These are your colleagues. A certain per- person writes a column. It – blows up virally, everyone is paying attention to it, that's where all the heat and passion goes, and the idea that sociologically sort of uh, that you're not going to have status confirmed on the people who have the best stuff, and so you could have a, a, a 5,000 word about famine in Yemen, and it's blip, 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 and yeah. then, you know, you could have someone saying Donald Trump, you know, was probed by aliens, and it takes off. Yes. I think that's just a bad cultural signal. And it's 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 made almost cinematic by the idea of the scoreboard at the Washington Post, but it's a problem all over the place. I mean, like when you were the editor of the New Republic, isn't part of being an editor basically just picking the stuff that you think is really important and cool to have someone write about? Yes, and and that that is what you put your finger on here is something that's kind of gone haywire. I mean, across our culture, but in journalism in particular, which is the gatekeeping function of journalism generally and editors within journalism is being eroded Mm -hmm. by the technology. I mean, there's just kind of no way around that. I mean, uh, I think the best editors will push back hard against that. And so to kind of repeat the point or maybe amplify the point, 
We have a very good editor on our editorial page who believes, Fred Hyatt believes strongly that human rights in obscure corners of the world, yep. like Azerbaijan or something like that, deserve a mention mm -hmm. because otherwise those people are just, you know, off there all by themselves. And I think it's a fair guess that outside of Azerbaijan, maybe those editorials don't get a whole lot of traction, but it's part of sort of the you guys are huge in Azerbaijan. Yes, we're time. very big. You're there. the David Hasselhoff of German <laughs> of journalism. Fred Hyatt is big in Azerbaijan. <laughs> no, but to, to sort of take up causes for people who wouldn't have any kind of access right. to the public sphere at all is kind of an old-fashioned view of what the duty and role of an editorial page is. And I think we're, we're sticking to that even, even in this, in this time. Who knows what it does for the paper economically, if anything? But I think it's—I think actually it's a net plus, even in that regard, because it's—it's it's overall uh, part of branding us as a quality mm -hmm. publication. You know, I think that's exactly right. There's just some—you know—at National Review, where our mission is very different than your mission, but there are some issues because of National Review's history, its place in the conservative movement. We just feel like it is necessary for us to sound off on certain things and cover certain things. Because if we don't, you know, no one responsible will, that, that kind of thing. So, I mean, I, I, I get all that. I just – I remember when uh, Slate was just getting up and running and I sh I actually shared offices with those guys, with Frank Foer and, and the whole crowd and Dave Plotz. And I remember Kinsley having a quote somewhere because Kinsley did it mostly by remote from the West Coast, from Washington State, um, saying how he would – he never shows his writers – their traffic numbers because it would be demoralizing. And now it's very hard to hide those numbers from – Well, Jonah, I've seen my traffic numbers uh -huh. and they're demoralizing. <laughs> but I'm glad you mentioned – maybe not everyone listening knows that Kinsley is a reference to the great Michael Kinsley. Yes. Who was the first editor of Slate and before that, he was my boss at the New Republic. Uh, and uh, he's somebody I really – I just want to say a, a good word about him because he was somebody, you know, back to my origin story, so to speak, who really influenced me early yeah. on, both substantively and stylistically. And the thing about Mike that r was so valuable and so impressive and unfortunately th in this day and age, not many people can achieve this. Mike was really sharp and really pointed and never took cheap shots, mm -hmm. right? Mike always did his homework so that when he was zinging you, it was because he kind of had outthunk you yeah. thoroughly. And everybody had to respect him even though he drove them nuts. He was also – I mean I'm saying was. He still writes occasionally. Mm -hmm. um, but he is extremely funny. Yeah. I'm not. But we could use a lot more Mike Kinsley's. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 Kinsley was always, Michael Kinsley was always very kind to me. One of the first pieces I ever wrote was for Slate that he asked me to do on canine eugenics. Um, and, uh, he was very encouraging and, and a, and a sweet guy. Um, I always had some disagreements with Michael, as you might imagine, because I'm more conservative than he is. Uh, one of the, but I will grant you, his his skill as an editor was amazing and his skill as a writer was truly impressive – is truly impressive. He's just – I'm not talking about him as if he's dead. I'm just – he's just yeah. not on the scene as much anymore. But one of the things that drove me crazy was he had this formula for attacking certain conservative positions by by taking some aspect of their principled position, extending it to the extreme 
and then saying, well, if they were really serious, they would believe that we couldn't clip our fingernails because you can turn those cells into fetuses or something like that. And that got kind of a little old. Uh, well, they should have just not taken those positions. Um, <laughs> well, you know, I know, but, yeah, but that's, sometimes he argued like a trial lawyer. I, yes, but the, he, that's because he went to law school and, and he, he had, he, in his journalism, he was one, of, actually one of the first big time journalists who had done law school, mm-hmm. right? As a preparation for his column, as opposed to like, you know, going out and reporting, I guess. But he, he had that ability to sort of push you down the slippery slope. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. is an old law school trope. And, you know, fair enough. It wasn't always valid. But the thing of it is, I, I hasten to remind you, Jonah, didn't know we were going to turn this into a discussion of Mike Kinsley. But you never know where this thing's going to go. never know where it's going. <laughs> but he was doing that on issues. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. It was always about issues. It was always about substance. It was never, well, not never, but it was rarely about just like, you know, how you held your pinky while you were sipping tea. Yeah, no, no, I agree with that. Look, I mean, I'm, I am nostalgic for much of that era, even for the people I disagreed with <laughs> yeah. from that era. I mean, like Christopher Hitchens. Well, I have lots of things I could say about Christopher Hitchens that I thought were in error, but I also miss having him around. All right, so since we brought it up, well, first of all, we should hear from our first advertiser this week, which is Untuck It, and uh, we're very happy to have them. The shirts are great. And they're sort of that good mix between sort of, you know, dressy and casual. And as if you're someone like me who's, you know, bestrides the earth like a colossus, sometimes it's hard to find a, um, a sort of dressy shirt that you can still wear untucked and not look ridiculous doing so. And that's what these guys have. They're not too long, not too short. They're, they provide that clean, casual look you can even wear at the office. They have more than 50 fit combinations, and untucked shirts look great on tall, short, slim, and athletic guys of all ages. So here's the deal. Go to untuckit.com or visit one of Untuckit's 50 stores across the U.S. and Canada. Untuckit even offers free shipping and returns on all orders in the U.S. Use promo code DINGO for 20% off your first purchase. So if you want the perfect fitting shirt, regardless of your shape and size, try the original untucked shirt. And remember, use promo code DINGO for 20% off your first purchase. That's untuckit.com, promo code DINGO. And thanks very much to Untuckit uh, for sponsoring this podcast. All right, so... Let's talk briefly about the Stephen Glass. I knew Stephen Glass probably not as well as you did. <laughs> uh, for listeners who don't know, Stephen Glass was a guy who made up a great number of stories for the New Republic. Chuck inherited him. He was already working there because Hank Azaria was uh, his editor. <laughs> <Hank Azaria. laughs> um, actually, Michael Kelly, the late great Michael Kelly, another guy I miss. I know that you may have some issues, but no, no. but um, and it fell to you to unravel that whole sweater and and do the rest. And you were portrayed. By um, what's his name? Sarsgaard? Peter. Peter. No, Peter Sarsgaard. Peter Sarsgaard in in the film about all of this. So, uh, how often do you get asked about it? Uh, this is the second time this week. Yeah. Um, it's been twenty years since it's been. No, it's actually been almost twenty one years since the thing happened. Yeah. And it's been almost sixteen years since the movie. Yeah. And I regularly get asked about it. In fact. Uh, I thought it was going to die down a few years ago. It started to dwindle, but it keeps coming back because this movie uh, just 
caught fire yeah. as a small independent film by Billy Ray, the writer and director, with a really good cast of people who are big stars now, like yeah. like Peter and Chloe Sevigny and Hayden Christensen, but who were kind of small stars at the time, yeah. with the exception of Hayden, I guess. And it's turned it into a thing where it's just a, a new generation of young people learning journalism see this in their journalism schools all yeah. the time. Uh, and uh, it lives forever on cable. Uh, forever. And and it it's also lives forever in a hundred assignments in journalism class. Yeah. And I know that because I, I regularly get emails from high school and college students asking me if they can ask me a few questions about Shattered Glass. So, I mean, uh, it's also, I think it's it's gotten a, a, a perpetual life out of the American public sort of never-ending fascination with journalistic misconduct, Yeah, right? I mean, you're, you're a movie guy, Jonah. You know there are basically two kinds of movies about journalism. One, the journalist is the hero, right. like Spotlight, who's holding the powerful right. evildoer to account. And the other one is the journalist is the evildoer right. who is violating the norms of his or her profession. And obviously, Shatterglass is in the second category. And people are fascinated, especially with all this talk about you know alleged fake news and stuff, with when journalism goes wrong. And this was a spectacular case, uh, and it has a certain level of mystery to it. Mm -hmm. But you know something else? If it had been a bad movie, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Yeah, right. So I think that the ultimate reason I still get these calls is that Billy Ray made such a good movie. Yeah. So it's funny. I actually talked to not, not Billy Ray, but one of his producers when they were making that because David Plotz, who had been at Slate and was married to Hannah Rosen, now right. Rosen Plotz, uh, who was a who's kind of the Chloe Savinia character, kind of not. Right. I, I guess that's what that was. Yeah. And back when we shared offices, we were also would go to lunch together all the time. And I was the only person plots ever heard from that insisted that he makes up some of his stuff. Steve Glass. Steve Glass. So I called it before he got busted. And I was just like, I don't believe it. I don't like it was partly the CPAC story because having been to CPAC with that, with those packs of n nerd boys, the idea that they were, they were like roving rape gangs from Mogadishu just did not, you know, <laughs> scan with me. And the, um, and the piece, Steve, the diarist that Steve wrote where he said that, um, the customer service person from Gateway, the computer company yelled at him. Well, and I guess the little Jew doesn't get his computer. Right. Just didn't buy it. And it was, it was too many great stories that he just stumbled into. Well, I, I think you've put your finger on another reason why this – both the story and the movie have life is that they're not – when you really get down to it, they're not movies about journalism. They're movies – it's a movie and a story about human nature. Yeah, and status, anxiety, and, and ambition. And why we yeah. believe, why yeah. we believe things. And I think the, the great takeaway for me from that whole episode is the power – of stereotype and confirmation bias. Those two, those are the two key ingredients of any successful journalistic fraud. You have to provide a particular audience with something they are already prepared to think is true. Right. right. Okay. And so the readers of a, of a liberal, uh, journal like the New Republic would believe. Right. That conservative kids would be total hypocrites and would behave like lechers 
backstage of a conservative political sort of like office. this Covington story now people wanted to believe it's true yeah and 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 I got to say like anybody it's not about liberal bias it's not about ideology it's about the human capacity to deceive oneself yeah and that's you know there've been many journalistic frauds since and there was just another one at, at Spiegel the other day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they all have that ingredient. For what it's worth, Jonah, I actually, as a result of the experience, taught a journalistic ethics class three semesters, two at Georgetown and one at Princeton. And it was a class on fraud in journalism. Mm. I, I took case studies throughout literally the centuries, beginning with Edgar Allan Poe, who was perpetrated a journalistic hoax back in the early 19th century. And we went through in this class all of these different cases. And these are the, 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 the reason to go through them over time is to understand what they all have in common. Mm -hmm. It's not that each one is, is unique, right? That what they all have in common is that they exploit this human susceptibility. Yeah. It's not, it's not even gullibility. It's because it's non-random, right? It's you provide people that, you know, of a particular kind with particular message that they are more receptive to and they will believe you. Well, and also sometimes part of the problem, like with the Dan Rather memo stuff, is I think the, the willingness to self-deceive and confirmation bias and groupthink problem was internal to the organization. I don't think they were deliberately perpetrating a fraud. Um, I think that just some of it was too good to check. Yes, too good to check is the kind of second order phenomenon. Right. Okay. The first order phenomenon is the skillful fraudster. Right. Who understands his audience and pitches the fraud to that audience. The too good to check is the problem of the gatekeeper. Right. Which in, in the story you're talking about would have been Dan Rather because this, I mean, somebody concocted fake documents, gave them to his producer, and then Rather had the responsibility of, of checking it. And, you know, I think this was the culpability of all of us at the New Republic. Yeah. Uh, was that, uh, we saw Steve's material and we thought, wow, that's good. And it's not so much that it's too good to check, although mm -hmm. too good to check happens a lot. It's that it's really good. And we know this guy. He's right. one of us. We trust him. And he was a nice guy. Yeah. And, you know, you would check his stories, but you would never check them with the idea in your mind, you know, it's kind of, even money that this is a complete fraud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that doesn't occur to you in the moment. I have to say, Jonah, you know, I'm in some ways really glad I went through that experience. Yeah. Because it enabled me to visit that side of human nature. And I, I've just never forgotten the lessons. I'm an extremely skeptical person yeah. about pretty much everything that I see and read. And it's daunting because it, you know if you're if you're fundamentally skeptical if you like don't believe anything you can't get anything accomplished you can't move yeah uh you have to trust to some extent to go forward but i really think that the lesson of that event is that you know like that old saying from reagan you know trust but verify yeah. and it can apply to anybody so it's funny i mean two th two quick thoughts one is um uh, I was listening to Charlie Sykes's uh, Bulwark podcast yesterday, and he has—I can't remember the name of the outfit—but one of these good government NGO that save democracy types. You know, you know, they're all over the place, Washington. <laughs> no, but anyway, but he was making the point that, um, or they were making the point that 
so much of what is bedeviling about the the Trump administration and its use of executive power and all, everything else is that we never really appreciated it until recently how much of presidential power is based on an honor system. And the same thing goes for journalism. If if he's lying in his notes, right? You know, you have to the the the, the cognitive leap you have to make to assume it's true fraud is really hard to do, particularly in a room where everyone likes the guy and everyone is sort of agreeing on the same thing. But the second point, right, so you taught this class where you did this this history of it. I go back and forth about this. People come up to me all the time and say, please stop eating off my plate. No, but the, people come up to me all the time and say, why is the press worse than it's ever been? And I think right now in the Twitter world, you can make a case that it kind of is worse than it's ever been in, in certain ways. But how much do you think that, you know, from Walter Durante or the Edgar Allan Poe thing, which I don't know about, how much more dishonesty do you think was loaded into and fraud was loaded loaded into newspapers or journalism in the 19th and 20th century that just never got outed because you didn't have – the readers weren't empowered and there wasn't an alternative media infrastructure that basically the internet provides to expose it? Because I kind of suspect particularly those partisan papers of the 19th yes. century, just enormous numbers of lies were I, probably perpetrated. I agree with you. And I would throw onto the pile the following. I urge anyone who thinks there was a golden age of the uh, honest media in the past to go back and read the coverage, say, of the Los Angeles riots yeah. in the Los Angeles Times in 1965, to go back and read the accounts of lynchings that were published in southern newspapers and the um, just you know blatant, matter-of-fact, out-and-out – demagogic racism yeah. that penetrated like papers that today have marquee names. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we have to understand that journalistic standards have been evolving. Let's right. put it that way. My, my two minutes or 20 seconds on that is as follows. And this is something I've learned because I've written a couple of books, one of which is forthcoming soon called Freedom's Detective, <laughs> uh, in which a lot of my uh, research has been conducted by reading lots of coverage of events in 19th century press. Yeah. And basically in the 19th century, America was hyperpartisan and the press was hyperpartisan. Right. I mean you had pretty much every big city had at least two newspapers and at least one of them was literally affiliated with the Republican Party and right. the other was literally affiliated with the Democratic Party. And that was understood and given that you were getting news filtered through a politically partisan, not just an ideologically bent, but like, you know, the news was loyal to that party. Yeah, just the coverage of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, the Democratic totally. papers are like, Douglas destroyed Abraham Lincoln to the point where he was a quivering mass of, you know, jelly. And then the other ones are like, 10 men had to restrain Douglas because he was so incensed by being defeated by Lincoln. You know? Yes. And it wasn't really until mid-20th century, roughly speaking, that the notion of a broadly accepted factual narrative that everyone could kind of, you know, just agree on as the goal of daily journalism even was a thing. Right. And, uh, aspirationally, of course. And, um, so I think <clears throat> the big story, one of the big stories about journalism today is that we're kind of going back to the 19th century pattern. Yeah, I have the exact same theory. I agree entirely. It's... Yeah. Well, now that I know it's your theory too, I might have to reconsider it. <laughs> no, but... no, no. I mean, I, I mean, William Powers wrote something about this a while ago and Yuval Levin and I have talked about this. I, I call it like this great parentheses. 
that it comes out of technology, really, that because the ability to – the instantaneity of reporting got more and more plausible, particularly with television where, they, you know, they put the camera on something, you are there, right? So there's this idea that you could be a fly on the wall and not – and it, part of it comes out of progressivism, this technocratic disinterestedness that Walter Lippmann and these guys talk about. Yes. And – which is also very – technology driven and you know that the degree at columbia journalism school is a bachelor of science is that right in journalism but you know i agree with you that technology has been a factor but i think it's um more look we're, we've all run away now with twitter and everything but when this got <clears throat> excuse me when this phenomenon of partisanship started to reemerge in the media i believe it was the caused by the interaction of technology and the economic basis of newspapers mm -hmm. so that marketing dur – during the 40s, 50s and 60s, you could open a daily newspaper in a big city in America and you find like dozens of pages of advertising, yeah. most of it from department stores and auto dealers. Yeah, yeah. And th that those were broad spectrum business models, particularly the department store, that were aimed at a broad middle of the American market. Yeah. With the emergence of niche marketing, the need to appeal to a broad audience diminished and therefore the economic basis of news that was broadly accepted diminished. Yeah. And that has been snowballing and snowballing and snowballing to the point where now you can have a podcast that's sponsored by like one niche product and that's a viable business model for all concerned. And, you know, so broadcast television and major metropolitan dailies that were aimed at, you know, a wide spectrum of readers were founded on sponsors, advertising sponsors who needed to reach that mass market. Yeah. And that's changed. No, that, that's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about it in those terms. The one caveat is the one I often bring up, which is that. In Europe, they never had this great parenthesis, right? Right. So in England, you have The Guardian, which is sort of hardcore left-wing, and you have The Times, which is Tory or whatever, and you can go on down. It doesn't mean they're bad newspapers. It right. just means you know where they're coming from and why this is on their front page but not on their front page. And to be honest, there's – I honestly believe – that opinion – good opinion journalism and there's a lot of really bad opinion journalism out there. But a well-reported argument in the New Republic – the old New Republic or a National Review or the New Yorker or the Atlantic, I much prefer that to the objective reporter model because when you have a long-form argument where you know the author's – where the author is essentially telling the reader, I'm going to make an argument. Here's what I believe. Here's why I believe it. The reader is brought in on equal footing. When you have some of these people who call, you know, I mean, you know this stuff better than I do, but there are lots of reporters who just go to people they know they're going to get the quotes they want back. You yes. Know? And that yeah. is a way of editorializing without calling it editorializing. Yes. I, I grant you that. On the other hand, I do think that what you're describing, uh, let's just say that I wish there was a lot of high quality argued journalism. Yeah. Um, I think we're now way past the point where there's, you know, where that's a dominant force. I think we're just now into, you know, a blizzard of hot takes. Yeah. And no, I agree with that. And, and I think, again, going back to my old role model, Michael Kinsley, I mean, Michael would not let you get away with that as an editor. And I think 
and and we had time. You know, I think I think what's happening in America generally is that deliberation is being destroyed. Yeah. You know, there is no premium placed anymore on just thinking for a little while before you say something. Yeah. That goes for Congress, that goes for the press, for everything. And I've been thinking about that a lot because I'm beginning to realize like you can't have stable government that has no moment of deliberation in it, right? Right. And and yet, now this is where I do agree with you about the sheer kind of autonomous impact of technology on all of these things. I do believe that social media has taken that problem into a whole new realm. Yeah. No, it I, just doesn't let you deliberate. Yeah, I mean, it's differences of degree can become differences of kind, and the shrinking of the news cycle to thirty seconds is it's a horrible thing for humanity. Yep. All right, so I, one, I'll just be mad at myself because this is one of the questions my wife wanted to ask you. What What did the movie get wrong? Like, what did Shattered Glass yeah, get wrong? Significantly wrong. Significantly wrong. Nothing. Honestly, I mean, here's how I've always felt about the. Well, I'll tell you what uh, my family thought they got wrong. Uh-huh. There's a scene in there where I'm like a real mensch and I help my wife to take care of our baby. Uh-huh. You know, my brother saw that and he said, hey, where'd they get the stunt double to, <laughs> <laughs> to, to do that? You know, you would never have helped out like that. They they made me seem way too uh, much of a mensch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, I think you're mensch-like. Well, thank you. I, I was a, I, the Chuck Lane of the movie was a little too hesitant to grab power at the New Republic. Um, but uh, the way I look at the movie and why – and, you know, I'm going to sound like a shill for Billy Ray. But he's uh. a very fine filmmaker. And um, the thing that I admired about what he did there was he took office politics and fact-checking yeah. and made them compelling yeah, yeah, yeah. without – taking gross license with the facts. Yeah. And so I would compare the relationship between reality and that movie, Shattered Glass. It's sort of like the relationship between Shakespeare's play Othello and the opera Othello. You know? <laughs> like it sort of it took the big long sure. thing and reduced it to its essence while retaining what was sort of dramatically essential about it. And, you know, that's another – I mean, honestly and truly, when when I heard they were going to make a movie, I thought, A, they're never going to get anybody to make it because most Hollywood movies don't get made. And secondly, it won't be any good when yeah, it's made yeah. because it's a movie about office politics and fact-checking. And, you know, hat off to Billy Ray that 20 years later, people are yeah. considering it one of the best movies uh, yeah. about journalism that's ever been made. No, I think that's fair. Um, I want to hear from our next sponsor, Americans for Prosperity. Since our nation's founding, America has been a beacon of freedom and prosperity envied the world over. The freedom to trade is one of the greatest economic freedoms we have. Just ask our frequent guest, Scott Lincecum. America wins when we have the freedom to buy, sell, and compete anywhere in the world. Breaking down barriers to free trade is critical to a healthy economy and lasting prosperity. Free trade helps create jobs, lower the cost of goods we buy, foster new technologies and innovations, and improve our quality of life. Free trade benefits each of us every day. It's time for Washington to end all the protectionist trade policies and support free trade and open trade. Learn how you can make a difference at tradebuildsamerica.com. And thank you to Americans for Prosperity for advertising on this show. 
and let's get back to the conversation. Uh, so in the time we have left, I want to hear a little bit about your forthcoming book. I also want to hear just on your, uh, you know, let's do our, this is the rank punditry portion of this podcast. Okay. Um, how do you think the democratic field is shaping up? Do you think it's Trump's race to lose? Uh, is there any chance that the sweet meteor of death will destroy all life on planet earth and maybe we can leave <laughs> things to the bees? Uh, you know, every other day I sort of think like maybe that's our best option at this point. <laughs> Uh, seriously, I, I think the democratic field is not shaping up in any surprising way. I mean, all the same people you've heard about, uh, are, are getting into the race. I think they're going to have a problem, sort of reminds me of, uh, what happened to the French army at Agincourt. <laughs> so the French knights had the British completely outnumbered and they came charging at them through this battlefield, this plain. There was a narrow point in the middle that they didn't plan on and suddenly all the knights started tripping over one another right. and fell down and suffocated and that's actually how they lost the battle. And the Democrats have so many candidates that you think like, wow, maybe they're just going to destroy one another before they ever get a chance to hit Trump. And I'm not kidding about that because there's there's a lot to work with with each one of these people. None of them is quite perfect. And they, but they do kind of all subscribe to the exact same wish list of policies, you know, the Medicare for all and the $15 minimum wage. So how can they differentiate themselves one from another? And that's going to be by attacking personally, attacking at their sort of, you know, uh, most vulnerable points in terms of identity politics and what have you. And, you know, they might just generate such a pileup that they weaken whoever comes out of it. Uh, I think also that this is going to be a moment where not just the party picks a nominee, but the party picks a future kind of political and ideological character. Mm -hmm. And all the early signs are that the movement toward the left in the party is really powerful mm -hmm. and I think maybe a permanent thing. As uh, permanent as anything is permanent. As anything can be, yeah. yeah. And – and you see already, you know, like there was this myth that Nancy Pelosi and the adults in the room were going to just take AOC and kind of, you know, put her in the corner and tell her to wait her turn. And that hasn't worked out because yeah. in part because of all the things we've been talking about, that access to social media weakens the power of these gatekeepers within the political party. So it's – And everywhere else. And everywhere else. So there's no gatekeeper. This is a this is a, par a primary of sort of the post-political party, political party, yeah. where it's just a scramble for the top prize without any institutional place to hold it. And, and speaking of how this takes us back to the f future in a way, ironically, the democratic field almost is like the way political parties used to have a favorite son candidate yeah. from each of the states yeah. when they started out, yeah. you know? But and now it's from each identity politics category. It's um, actually, I agree with you. It's, it's both from every sort of identity category, but also from every state, yeah. you know? And frankly, Kamala Harris from California, I think you have to assume that she, if she gets traction as a candidate, she's going to have all those delegates. Yeah. But she's also, uh, African American. And so Cory Booker is going to compete for African, whatever. Yeah. But there's so many people in the field. You almost wonder if, wow, you really could have a brokered convention because they've gotten rid of the super delegates. Um, it's going to be wild. Yeah. Although my understanding, and I looked at this briefly when the, those reforms came out and, 
it does want to, it does kind of bring out my, well, of course this is going to go this way because everything that, everything insane that can happen does happen since they touch the orb or whatever. <laughs> they, um, my understanding is that those rules, the super delegates cannot vote in the first round. Right. But they can vote in the second round. <laughs> well, but, but Jonah, what, you're right. They, they have that vestigial. Isn't that worse in some ways, right? So that everyone's brokered and broken and then the superdogs come along and they get to rig this. I mean, I, I think there's going to be a lot of yelling is all I'm saying. <laughs> uh, you, you make a good point. I think, I think the other thing that's happened is sort of outside the black and white of the rules is the delegitimization of superdelegates yeah. as a concept. Yeah. So somebody who wins with the help of the superdelegates will be considered to be the beneficiary of a rigged system. I mean, right. there's that risk to it. What the hell is Gillibrand doing? I don't, do you have a th- theory of her? I, mean, she, I watched her Stephen Colbert announcement, Greg, because that's that's how we do things now. <laughs> and uh, um, and that's why I've started cutting myself again. And um, she, she says, you know, as a young mom – I'm going to care more about your kid. I'm going to fight just as hard for your kids as I fight for my own. Now, I have a huge problem with the notion that politicians can fight as hard for their for my kids as as their own kids, and it's a huge category error, violating all sorts of libertarian <laughs> and conservative things. And I've written a lot about that over the years. But she's not a young mom. She's like 52, you know. <laughs> and and she she my wife is right about this that. I think too often it's easy to talk about female politicians and say they're ambitious in a in a negative connotation way, and I try not to do that. I, I, but I don't have that criticism of Elizabeth Warren or of Klobuchar or a bunch of the other female or even Kamala Harris. There is something about Gillibrand who started out as a sort of right wing Democrat creature of the Clintons, turned on the Clintons, threw Al Franken under the bus, and now is reinventing herself as the the only bona fide female Me Too ish candidate. It's like what Jesse Jackson had said about Bill Clinton. This is like there's nothing in there but appetite. I just, I don't, I just, that's the one I don't quite get. Well, uh, not having made quite as thorough a study of Chris <laughs> Gillibrand as you have, I would just say that, uh, you know, to take the other side of that question, mm-hmm. there's a lot of Democrats who believe like, well, we need somebody ruthless. Yeah. Well, so she would fit the bill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's something, uh, in fairness to Kirsten Gillibrand, there's something that happened to her that's happened to a lot of politicians when they move from running for a House seat in a district to running statewide. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. An example I always give is uh, David Vitter, the late lamented senator from Louisiana who broke into politics as a member of the House from uh, the suburbs of New Orleans and a moderate who opposed David Duke and morphed into a very, very conservative right-wing senator because the rest of the state – you know, he had to run there. And I think that's kind of what happened, broadly speaking, to Kirsten Gillibrand ideologically when she went for the Senate yeah. in New York. I, I I think a more interesting question in a way is like, so what is it exactly if, – if what we're going to do here is judge people based on their gender and their race, what basis is there for differentiating Kirsten yeah. Gillibrand from Amy Klobuchar, right? right? So obviously at some point this campaign is going to have to get into something more than just – are you a white woman? Are you a black woman? Blah, blah, blah. And there I think Klobuchar would maybe have the advantage because she could say, well, I haven't been switching my positions back and right. forth, right? So we'll have to see. But I guess Jill Brand has a following somewhere and she has the New York 
you know, access maybe to Wall Street money. Yeah. I don't know. People will try to play that against her. By the way, that's another huge latent yeah. issue within the Democratic Party is if they get sort of too far into economic populism, where, where are their donors going to go? Right. right. I mean, is Jamie Dimon not, I don't know where he gave his money, but somebody like that really going to finance a 70% marginal tax rate? Right. You know, or not. Yeah. All right. So you were working on a book. We will have you back to talk about the book when the book comes out. But I'm going to hold – you've just said that on I'm tape. Come to so write it down, Jack. That's <laughs> on the record. That's a binding guarantee. My new book, which I finished, just put the last correction through about a week ago, is called Freedom's Detective and it has nothing to do with contemporary politics mm -hmm. except by implication, which I'll we'll get into <laughs> in a minute. It's a history of the United States Secret Service in its early days, just huh. after the Civil War. And a little known fact about the Secret Service is that it started out not as presidential protection or diplomatic protection, but as detectives uh -huh. to fight counterfeiting. Right. Yeah. Um, because the national currency had just been issued during the Civil War. And it was sort of given a second mission during Reconstruction, which was to infiltrate and break up the Ku Klux Klan in the South. Uh -huh. And so my book is kind of a combination biography of the chief of the Secret Service during that time. He's Freedom's detective and a discussion more widely of kind of what went right and what went wrong with that effort to build the first – it was sort of like a proto-FBI yeah. many years before we ever had an FBI. And um, yeah, it will be out April 9th. The publisher is Hanover Square Books and I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. Did the it. Secret Service – I mean we'll get more into this but – did they recently dump the counterfeiting part of no, the portfolio? The Secret Service to this day is an anti-counterfeiting detective agency and they also do yeah, – I just thought there was something with like DHS or the Treasury. They were trying moved to... from Treasury to DHS. But they kept the function. Yes. They okay. kept that function and they're really good at it. Yeah. I mean they are the world's best and you know they also do phony checks, yeah. uh, forged securities, uh, all those kinds of things. Um, for those who are interested in that, uh, there's a, a lot of the sort of early history of currency and the early history of counterfeiting in uh -huh. my book. But the heart of it really is this kind of clandestine war between this terrorist organization, the Ku Klux Klan in the South, and this band of detectives yeah. who went south disguised as Klansmen, huh. pretending to be Klansmen, and then – you know, pulled sting operations on the Klan. Did they did they do more of that with the second Klan? Or did they there was no Secret Service involvement in any of that. That yeah. was the FBI by then. Yeah, in the, okay. in the 1960s. And I mean, one of the things. That, well, no, but I'm talking about the the, the I'm talking you're about talking the, about the 1920s. Yeah, that's clear. The FBI was on the scene by then. And in fact, that's a great question, Jonah, because it enables me to make the additional point. <laughs> that part of my story uh -huh. is that Southern Democrats when they re regained power in Congress, went after the Secret Service and the Justice Department to defund them uh -huh. and limit their mission because they had been used yeah. in the South against the Klan. Yeah. And therefore, there was no such um, federal detective slash covert agency available to infiltrate yeah. lynch mobs and white terror in the South for many, many years. And it's sort of a – I found it a very interesting example of how race had a role in the formation of an agency that you wouldn't think yeah. 
would necessarily, it, you know, it, it would pertain. I sort of like my, um, you know, my understanding is that the practice of including photos with job applications in the federal government began when Woodrow Wilson resegregated the federal workforce and the Dixiecrats wanted him to like bring, you know, restore a lot of the pre-war, I mean, maybe not slavery, but you know, yes. And he didn't go as far as, as the, the, some of them wanted, but he did resegregate the federal bureaucracy. And the reason we have a picture is that that way you can tell not sometimes you can't tell from a name whether someone's black or white, right. but the picture you can. And, uh, well, photography is a big part of my story uh -huh. because it was new technology in the 1860s and 1870s and the secret service began to use it to identify suspects. If you think about it, part of what enabled organized crime at that time, and by the way, also organized or enabled detectives was yeah. that no one knew what your face looked like. Right. And the Secret Service was uh, the first American police agency to really systematically use photography as a tool of law enforcement as <laughs> had been done interesting. Uh, in Europe. So there's lots of it, – Yeah, that's great. It's lots of interesting yeah, we'll, uh, history in there. We'll have you back. All right. Final question. When you talk to somebody outside of Washington and they don't really know in a granular way the way the media or the politics works or whatever, which probably makes them happier and better people, what is the one thing that runs contrary to their expectations that you think would surprise them? You know, About Washington? About how Washington actually works. I, or or journal, mainstream journalism, either one. Yeah. I think it is that – People really believe what they're saying. <laughs> yeah. That politicians believe in things and that they're not just putting on a show. I mean, sometimes they're putting on a show, but they don't put on a random show. Mm -hmm. You know, um, Nancy Pelosi doesn't say what she says about immigration while secretly wanting there to be a wall and right. scheming, the, you know? And, um, so I think, what I try to remind people here is that it's not all just some like big rigged system. It's a system that is made by real individuals doing what they think is a combination of the right thing and in their – to their advantage. Because I really do think that um, one reason we have a shutdown right now is that people uh, sort of sloppily assumed, ah, this is just a bunch of posturing. Uh, they'll cut a deal in the end and that's what they all really want. And I think the shutdown is just, you know, one of many examples you could cite where that wasn't true, where yeah. no, actually people had, you know, for better and for worse, they had principles and there were certain things they weren't prepared to do uh, contrary to their principles. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, John. It was a good talk. It's a hell of a story. Chuck, please. Stop pitching, Steve. It's over. Okay, so Chuck has left the building, and it's just uh, Jack Butler and I in here now. How long did we go? Uh, about 50 minutes. Yeah, so he thought that was longer than, than he expected, and for us, that's actually a pretty short one. Yeah, I was grateful. <laughs> um, uh, what'd you think? He sounds like Nicolas Cage. Um, but I'm sure he'll find that 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 was your main takeaway to be. Uh, I I was also sort of. I think he's the second person I've met who has been portrayed in a movie 
I've met Dick Cheney before, and now that now that Vice is out, uh-huh. and before that, um, W. But you, I, I don't know if you were aware of this, but there's a, uh, a Lewinsky movie coming out, or it's in production, and you have there you have two lines of dialogue in it. Do I really? Yeah, I'm not sure who's going to play you, or if the movie the movie is currently in production and uh-huh. like. Oh, so this is a theatrical f- fictional movie yeah and uh i'm not i'm not sure if it'll ever come out it could be just one of those things but i've i I found the script somehow and uh i found i just control f for your name and you showed up you have two lines of dialogue a scene in uh linda tripp's apartment right is that right no in my apartment your apartment right but then you meet linda tripp yeah yeah all right well look i'm looking forward to not seeing that um (laughs) maybe i can play you that would be funny that would be great yeah um so stunt casting. What um so other than his uncanny like sounding like Nicolas Cage and the fact that you've checked off another box on your list of real life people portrayed in film. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else you got? Uh I'm glad that we're pe- people complain that this podcast doesn't have any liberals on. That's one of our the main complaints about it and he's not He's not quite he's a neoliberal right. um which in some ways is more controversial cuz neo Anything with Neo in front of it these days is controversial. Yeah. Well, so that's, that was always the original point is putting the Neo in front of it to conjure associations with like neo-Nazis and to be invidious. Yeah. This is this is why the Matrix films were so controversial as well. Precisely. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, hey, look, we can make the case that Neo was a, was a neocon in that, right? I mean, he is for exporting, demo, you know, liberty-loving de- revolution throughout the uh, – the known universe, but I'm waiting um, for. Has Sonny made the argument that the machines were good in the Matrix movies? I do not know, but it would not shock me. I can see that case being made. Um, the problem, the ultimate problem with the Matrix movies is they're really dumb on the merits. Yeah, they're like um, the philosophy behind them is like a freshman college intro to philosophy gets stoned, yeah. writes screenplay well, they, level, and also just the idea that that. Supercomputers can figure out all sorts of amazing things, right? Decide that the best source of energy for them is the electromagnetic pulses coming off of the human body, <laughs> uh, which I, I understand they kind of threw away in the second and third ones. But um, we were supposed to take away that as being the real explanation in the first one. Why wouldn't they just like fill the ocean with electric eels, you know, or or nuclear power plants, you know? Yeah. Uh, It was really dumb. So I heard somewhere, and this may not be true, uh, but I heard that at one point the machines enslaved humans because they were actually using our brains as computers. As parallel processors? Yeah, which would make a lot more sense because the human brain is a very powerful computer. That's right. Um, And it would be kind of an interesting, ironic twist to like, enslave humans so that we can then become computers for machines. Uh, that would be much better. They should have yeah, written that script. But, but it didn't happen. Said, yeah. So in other news, I'm kind of glad that we didn't talk about this Covington thing. There is, just as a matter of just full disclosure or whatever, I don't know, I didn't follow it. I didn't follow any of the coverage of it. On what was it, Sunday night? I was getting all of this grief for a post I didn't read by my colleague Nicholas Frankovich from National Review where he made the mistake of believing the Washington Post, the New York Times and, their, and the other parts of the mainstream media and their characterization of what happened with these kids. And we ended up – again, I was taking care of a kid with stomach flu. 
uh, we ended up taking down his post. Rich, I guess, deleted a tweet or two. We've, you know, apologized for, you know, making the mistake of believing reported news. But the usual crowd of, you know, jackals on Twitter, for some reason, are obsessed with coming after me about it, in part because at one point, you know, people were saying, the only thing I think I tweeted on the whole thing was I tweeted out a piece that Michael Brendan Doherty wrote, which I thought was very good, um, attacking the press for this whole thing. And, and I had a tweet where I defended National Review on the grounds that we have lots of different writers who write different things and ascribing National Review's editorial position to a blog post written in haste by one of my colleagues was unsound. So I said, you know, it's almost as if we run a magazine where people have different ideas about stuff. And this is being taken by all the usual suspects, including that woman at, you know, places like American Greatness, um, as proof that I wholeheartedly endorse what happened to the Covington kids, that I'm in on the woke media culture and all this kind of stuff. And I, one of the only reasons I bring it up is that I am really starting to, like, lose my patience with the bad faith and asininity out there. And now, yeah, no, it's weird. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's because I was off Twitter just long enough to realize how much I liked it being off Twitter. And then when I went back on and it was like, oh, my gosh, what fresh hell is this? <laughs> um, and so, look, I, I have a sneaking suspicion that this was a psyop, you know, from the beginning that you know, the we'll wait and see what the news is. But the or the reporting is but the initial video. The initial tweet or one of the initial tweets, I saw something this morning was saying that that account's been deleted, that it was an anonymous account. It was like registered in Brazil. And it seems to me that like maybe this whole thing was well designed by someone with not America's interests at heart to, you know, heighten the contradictions as it were. And it worked beautifully. <laughs> and I just think there's going to be a lot. You know, we've talked about this with Ben Sass, about the dangers of, of deep fake and all that kind of stuff. But I found the whole thing just particularly depressing, um, the whole spectacle of it. Um, this is one I, – I almost never follow Twitter on weekends. So it was just pure luck that I happened to not pay any attention to this at all. And so by the time I figured out what happened, everyone else had actually figured out what happened. Yeah. So but this this conveniently aligns with my general advice for stories like this, which is never to comment when – it doesn't seem like all of the information is available yet. Yeah. Just wait. No, it's hard. Wait. Yeah, I know. And it's, it's, I, I agree. I generally, I mean, Twitter makes it so much harder than even it was with blogging 10 years ago. And, you know, and I, look, I've made these mistakes too. I've stepped in it in all sorts of stories where I didn't wait. Um, and I call it, and I try really hard not to be, not to win the race to be wrong first. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that's really disgusting about this is that, you know, people like James Fallows just can't say, I screwed up. I believe something fake. They have to sort of provide these elaborate Rube Goldberg, no relation, <laughs> you know, rationalizations for why they caved into their motivated reasoning. And like the the Daily News did this thing today, where they're outing, you know, they're they're basically reporting on a Twitter thread, so they have some critical distance to it, which is BS. That the kids, some kids from Covington, were seen in blackface. And it turns out that, like, at their high school, at basketball games, they have, like, these weird tradition of picking a color and cover, you know, and wearing all that color to support their team or wearing body paint or whatever. And some years it's blue and some years it's red. <laughs> and one year it was black. 
and they have this picture of this kid, you know, not just in blackface, but in bo- black body paint, yelling at a, a African American student from the other team, and they're making it, they're trying to make it look like this was some sort of horrible racist incident. When he's yelling at the member of the other team because he's a member of the other team and it's a high school basketball game. Yeah. By and the way, Covington Catholic has a great basketball team. Do they? Yeah. I, I happen to be – so this is – the school is about – it's less than an hour from where I'm from. So this yeah. is like a local news story to me. And this is an all-male Catholic high school. So this is deeply personal to me. I feel I feel like my brethren have been have been Maligned. singled out. Yeah. 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 So – but yeah. It's, and it's just – people start making themselves look like idiots the more, the more that they, they – they can't back down. That's the thing. Yeah. Just admit you got it wrong and move on. But instead, what they're trying to do is they've designated these kids as, as enemies. The, the evidence for the designation has completely evaporated or, suffi- or let's just say sufficiently evaporated. And, and so rather than just say we screwed up, lots of these people are saying, well, they've already been designated an enemy. We can't take that back. So instead, we're going to look for other evidence, other proof that they're the enemy. Yeah, the classic phrase that you see in in, in statements like this is "whatever happened over right. the weekend." Completely insert completely unrelated arguments <laughs> about yeah. something here, and, 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 and always remember that these are these are high school children <laughs> we're yeah. talking about. Uh, it's just I've, I've just lost. I, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's other stuff going on in my life, but I'm just my patience for all of it and my patience for. You know, Kevin Williamson always tells me I deserve better enemies and um, just the the crap I am getting from people for really incredibly stupid things. And all weekend I'm getting email from people. How dare you do this thing with Covington? And I, I did nothing. I literally didn't know what they were talking about for half of these emails from people. But there's just so much pent up outrage. Understand? I understand the outrage. But there's this sublimation where they think, okay, because I'm the guy they're mad at because of Donald Trump, therefore I'm in on this thing and I deserve to be raked. And I just I have zero tolerance for it. And it's just I find it truly exhausting. Okay. So in other news, more uplifting news, I listened to – I finally got around to it – the econ talk with our friend Russ Roberts and Sebastian Younger, the author of Tribe. And I got to say – as much as I would very much like to win or at least be in the rankings for the uh, best, most popular podcast on Econ Talk for this year, for 2018, which he's running a survey on now, it was a fantastic podcast. And the creepy, almost eerie thing about it was in his own voice, which he's – and Sebastian Younger has got a very cool voice, uh, much cooler than your normal podcaster voice. Um he tracks so many of the arguments in my book about the nature of human nature, how you can't get rid of it, how we're all tribal. And so you have to have healthy outlets for tribalism rather than unhealthy ones. And it was it's just a great, great – and I, I think his book, Tribe, is wildly underrated and didn't get the attention it deserved. It's a very easy read. Um, heavily cited in Suicide of the West. Heavily cited. I learned a lot from that book um, and it's – Pithy. It's got great sort of journalistic summaries of all sorts of complicated things. Um, anyway, so I highly recommend people check it out. And 
you know, you could also listen to my edition on Econ Talk, and if you've got time on your hands, you can make a Venn diagram of the overlap. But uh, it was it was really interesting that, and I think it was really smart of Russ to pick this as the end of his end of the it was the last podcast of 2018 because you know, for those who aren't big fans of Russ Roberts, you should be, but he's been deviating from sort of just doing economic stuff for the most part into these other realms about where our problems are and all the rest. A lot of it sort of in the realms of stuff I write about in my book. And um, Younger kind of tied all of these threads together from stuff about the kibbutz, um, stuff about liberalism and, and, and technology. Anyway, it was really, really good. I highly recommend it. And there's another podcast that I should recommend, which I, I will be very bluntly on, honest about. I will not be listening to. Uh, but you are What a on, great recommendation. Well, it's like I have zero interest in ELO. <laughs> and All right. See ya. <laughs> and, and a three-hour podcast on ELO. Uh, anyway, we should tell people you are on the Political Beats podcast. Right. Because you are an ELO fanboy. Yes. Um, I shouldn't say I – have no interest. I like some of their songs, I guess, but I like, like, I, I, I'm the backstory of ELO or the deep cuts on side B stuff is just not my thing. But, uh, how did they end up finding you to be on this music podcast for three hours about ELO? Uh, well, I kind of, uh, begged. Yeah. I mean, I, I had the other, so it's Jeff Blahar and Scott Bertram are the hosts of Political Beats, a national review podcast you should all subscribe to. And uh, I didn't know Jeff, um, but I knew Scott because Scott is Scott is now like Hillsdale College's. Uh, he's the John Miller of Hillsdale College's radio journalism oh, okay. side project. So I knew him. We had been we had emailed back and forth about other things, and I had I had listened to Political Beats before. I listened to the. If you if you don't have patience for a one three hour episode with me on it, then you certainly don't have patience for two three hour episodes with Charlie Cook talking about the Beatles. But those that correct. I don't. I, I listened to <laughs> I listened to the whole the whole thing, and I I learned a whole lot about the Beatles that I didn't know. And I already and I'm no I'm uh, I'm no Charlie Cook, but I did I did know a lot about the Beatles, which I thought I did. But I so I I would like to see a matchup between James Rosen and Charlie Cook because James Rosen is a crazy Beatles obsessive. Completist, I think, is the tra- phrase he would use. Yes, uh, that would be that would be something. That could be. Uh, they, they might end. They might never. They might. You might put them in a room and they'll just never leave. Yeah, <laughs> just like, like two supercomputers playing chess against one. Another. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I listened to that episode, and m- my friend Philip Wegman, who uh, is a Hillsdale classmate of mine, did an episode on Creedence Clearwater Revival. I uh-huh. found out, and so I, my main concern about being on the podcast was that I would seem like I was out of my depth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I listened to Phil's episode, and he didn't seem – I mean, he did a good job, but he didn't seem to know more about CCR than I knew about ELO. Uh-huh. So that was my – Phil was my standard. Your benchmark. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. And so I, I asked them, would you do an ELO episode? And this was back in October of last year, and it took until last week for it to come to fruition. But it did, and we talked for a long time. Uh, it probably took that long for the same reason that, like, the people who are getting into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame now – are kind of, you know, like third tier. <laughs> oh. They have to go through the greats first. Oh, yeah, I guess you're right. Well, now they're, they they like, there are some, like the Moody Blues aren't in the Hall of Fame yet. Uh, and they, they skip, like, some obviously non-rock acts are in the Hall of Fame. So I think that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is kind of a, it's a, it's a loose definition of rock and roll. Fair enough. Um, 
but yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. I, 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 I think I actually contributed something worthwhile to their discussion. I think I held my own, and I, I had a great time doing it. In, in a sentence or two, why should people care about ELO? Because ELO is a Beatles tribute band, but it's more than that. It's a great hit-making band, but it's also like um, they're also great at sonic texture and atmosphere and um, like this podcast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and Jeff Lynne is a really, really good music producer, and he's a ni- he seems to be a nice guy. I've never met him, but I watched this documentary about him called. Uh, Mr. Blue Sky, the story of Jeff Lynn. And he just seems like a very, like some, some guy that you just find wandering around the streets in, in an, in an English town or English city. Not a homeless guy, not, not, not a homeless guy or not a Jeremy Corbyn, just a, just a bloke, um, who happens to be good at producing music. All right. There you go. Other things, uh, I want to just put some good thoughts out there to Brett Bear. Uh, he was, he and his whole family were in a pretty scary car accident last night in Montana. Car flipped. Um, there, I believe there were stitches and other, they were all hospitalized and, but they seem to be all okay. I sent Brett an email last night. The reason I found out about it was a friend of one of my best friend's sons goes to school with one of Brett's sons and his son texted my friend and then my friend got in touch with me. It's a small world department. <laughs> you hear about a traffic accident in Montana, you know, within minutes of it. But, um, sounds like, I mean, I just think about, I've been in some car accidents and, they're pretty terrifying when you're by yourself. The idea of having your kids in the backseat and your wife is and fl- flipping the car is just is pretty terrifying. And um, just want to send some good thoughts out there for that. Is there anything else that we um, must address in these waning moments? Uh, I can't think of anything. But there's always stuff churning below the surface in Jonah in the world of Jonah Goldberg. There is indeed. I mean, I, I and that's not just because you had something for breakfast that didn't agree with you. Um, I, uh, I suppose I could yell at more people who are saying and writing nasty things about me, but I'm going to skip that because I don't think it's good for the soul. And, uh, oh, if people missed it, I was on the Diane Ream. Did I mention this last week? You mentioned you were doing it. I don't, I, I did the it. Diane Ream podcast and it was well received. Um, maybe we'll put a link to it in the show notes. And, uh, we have some exciting things coming up on this podcast, which we will reveal later. Oh, lots of positive feedback for Jonathan Last, I got to say. I mean, obviously the people who think me and Jonathan are, you know, evil cucks, they tend not to listen anyway. But um, yeah. I think I think I earned a little credibility with the um, with the super thread people. Mega thread. Mega thread. Now you lost it. Yeah, I lost it all. <laughs> Damn it. Damn it. <laughs> um, but uh, – um, but that was fun to do, and we'll have Jonathan back on as as time permits. He says he would he would gladly come back on, and people should still keep sending suggestions for who we should have on, weird themes that we should discuss. Um, and uh, until then, uh, thanks for listening. Please follow us on Twitter at Jonah Remnant. Uh, please review us at iTunes. We're so close to three thousand reviews. Uh, that would be awesome. And if you don't, if you get this through nationalreview.com or through NR Podcast, that's great, but it'd be better for us, easier for you, and keep the uh, chuds away if you could subscribe to it on any of those obvious um, platforms like iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play. I actually listen to it on Podcruncher, oh. which is just an app. I don't know where that comes up in the statistics. Maybe I'm making a terrible mistake. Wouldn't be the first. Um, what do you want to explain? What chuds are, or are you just going to let that reference lie and make people figure it out? Do you think people don't know what chuds are? 
I, what kind of country do we live in? <laughs> I, really, I, the first, Cannibalistic humanoid underground dwellers. The first time you referenced it in a G file or something, I had to look it up. But this was prob- this may have been almost a decade ago because I've been reading you for that long. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, so as John Pedoritz can attest, there are a bunch of things that are landmarks of my memory and my nostalgia and my pop culture references that were – uh, excessively on TV in the late 70s and mid, through the mid-80s, particularly on local New York TV. And like the commercials for Chuds, it feels like they were the Chud movie, which was terrible, by the way, um, felt like it was on every day of my childhood. I mean, I just – I can't remember what age I was because it felt like since I could walk, I was seeing commercials <laughs> for this movie coming out about Chuds. But it's like there are – these things, when I get together with my friends from high school, we start talking in 80s shorthand about all sorts of stuff. You know, you know, we'll just wear here diagonally. You know, we'll just say weird things that make sense to us. Or you, you ever hear me say Mar Wampa Wampa? Yeah. You know what that's from? From a, from an ad about an Empire Strikes Back toy, right? Yeah, it's the, it's the, 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 a bottle snowman thing. What's it called? The it's called a wampa. A wampa, yeah. And so there's a scene where a little kid is holding it, and he just goes "mar wampa wampa" with it in the commercial. <laughs> and like we said that in school all the time. And um, so chuds loom very large in my life. As does that flying. There's one now. <laughs> as does that flying turtle that wasn't part of Tojo Productions, but was on the 4:30 movie all the time when they did Monster Week. And you know, I mentioned Day of the Triffids all the time because W O R Channel Nine in New York bought the rights to it, oh. <laughs> and they would run it all of the time as sort of their go-to scary movie. And so I don't think it deserves anything like its place in my memory or in our <laughs> popular culture, but it's stuck in there because I just you saw it so many times. You didn't grow up in a universe where if you were committed to watching TV, you simply had to watch the least objectionable thing on. <laughs> right. You're, you're right. I mean, I, I had... Growing up, I had fewer cable options than children do now, but but you had much more than I had. Growing right, up. and um, or at least when I was, you know, truly younger, and and so in some ways, I mean, again, that makes one of the reasons why we talked about this before. Gen X is the most is the last generation to grow up with a truly popular shared culture. You know, everyone's sort of balkanized now, but I also had to watch. 1960s sitcoms, 1950s sitcoms, and you know, like I've seen every I Love Lucy and all that kind of stuff. Whereas, like for for most kids growing up today, there's just no reason why they would feel like they have to watch that. You know, they can watch reruns of iCarly or SpongeBob or whatever. And so, it, it gives me a longer backward cultural fluency for some of this stuff. This is nothing to brag about, by the way. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, that's where it comes from. But we should we should probably just do another pop culture show at some point soon about talk about this stuff maybe get even get pod back on here um, yeah so you, you two can talk about the odd couple like you always do on glob yeah and it's heavy troy um who's another odd couple. if you grew up in new york city of a certain age the odd couple just was a hugely important important thing i'll take your word for and it that's why we need a midget named harry um <laughs> anyway Jeez. um anyway thanks for listening if you got emails send it to the remnant pod uh-huh. at gmail.com. And until, and I'll see you next time. No, you on this is a podcast. <laughs>